From Bowling Green State University and the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society, this is BG Ideas. I'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment. Hello and welcome back to the Big Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. I'm Dr. Jolie Sheffer, Associate Professor of English and American Culture Studies and the Director of ICS. Bowling Green State University and its campuses are situated in the Great Black Swamp and the Lower Great Lakes region. This land is the homeland of the Wyandotte, Kickapoo, Miami, Potawatomi, Ottawa, and multiple other indigenous tribal nations, present and past, who were forcibly removed to and from the area. We recognize these historical and contemporary ties in our efforts towards decolonizing history, and we thank the indigenous individuals and communities who've been living and working on this land from time immemorial. As always, the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of BGSU or its employees. Today, I'm talking with Natalie Orslein and Dr. Shannon Orr. Natalie is a master's student in the public administration program at BGSU. She's the recipient of an ICS Student Research Award for her project researching food pantry access, food insecurity, and social stigma. Shannon is a professor of political science, director of the MPA program, and an expert in environmental policy. You may remember her from a previous episode on water quality in the Great Lakes. Shannon serves as faculty advisor on Natalie's project. Thank you both for joining me today. Natalie, I'll have you start. Could you tell us about your project and what motivated you to do more research on food insecurity and food pantries at BGSU? Sure. So it started um, actually over the summer and really before that, when the pandemic began, I became interested through work Dr. Orr was doing on food insecurity and food pantries. And one of the topics that I found particularly interesting was the sort of management of it all, because food pantries, we talk a lot about the passion and the excitement, but the management and the work that goes behind it is very labor intensive and also really interesting from a public administration standpoint. And something that I found interesting in that was sort of managing the behind the scenes information. So the volunteers, the organization, all of that. And so my research began in trying to understand if you were going to start a food pantry, if you're going to run a food pantry, how do you best start from the beginning? And how do you best manage volunteers from the beginning? Because it can be easy to start and not have all of that figured out and not kind of lay the groundwork to have a great program and a great volunteer management system. Um, and so what I wanted to do was find out from the, from volunteers themselves and from people who run food pantries themselves, what goes into good management and what goes into being a good volunteer, because it's really important and it really helps to ensure that the work that you're doing is beneficial to everyone, to the community and to the people who are using the food pantry. Can you talk a bit, Natalie, about the specific need for food pantries and how that particularly works on college campuses like BGSU and how that might be different from um, what people might be thinking about food pantries in community settings? Sure. So we know that food insecurity is a huge issue nationwide. Um, in, in 2019, about 34 million people were living in poverty. And before the pandemic, about 35 million people faced hunger in the United States, including 10 million children. That's from Feeding America. And children are more likely to face food insecurity. And that includes young adults who are entering college, maybe entering a time where, you know, they're having to feed themselves for the first time, they're having to manage their own funds for the first time. So it's a particularly interesting kind of transitional period of maybe they experienced it at home or maybe they didn't, but now they're coming to college where they're living on their own for the first time for many of them, and also facing 
you know, having to manage their own finances, they're having to go to school and manage school and also home life. But it's particularly interesting for college students because the ways in which they have to utilize food pantries are different, right? Because it's on campus, the resources aren't as accessible to them. And they're facing a little bit of that stigma by having to use resources that are, you know, surrounded by their fellow students. So it's not just going to a food pantry you can drive up and kind of leave anonymously. In some cases, they're feeling a little bit like, well, you know, I don't want to ask for services on a campus where I know people. I don't want to ask for help when other people that I know aren't asking for help. And also, I'm trying to trying to be an adult for the first time. So having to say I'm struggling a little bit and maybe I don't know how to ask for help and I don't know how to how to get support is a difficult process. So colleges in particular face kind of a interesting topic of trying to support students who are in that transitional period. It reminds me a few years back when Division I NCAA athletes started talking about the fact that on Sunday nights, for example, if the dining halls were closed or depending on their intense practice schedules, they would just go hungry, right? And especially as athletes sort of needing a, a lot of food to compensate for, you know, hours and hours of practice or games, that it often is it doesn't look necessarily the way we think it's going to look, right? And it could be sort of hiding in plain sight right around us. Right. And I think also it's hard to have that conversation because in the midst of everything, I mean, when we talk about food on campus, the kind of messaging you get is, well, there's, you know, you have dining hall plans and you have options and there's always there's always options around, but those options aren't accessible to everyone financially. And I mean, not all students are facing the same traditional student experience. So to kind of say, oh, well, you know, you go to school at 18 and you have your food plan and you have the money to, you know, maybe buy food on the weekends. It's not true for everyone, but that's not the conversation we have around food and we have around college life. So to broach that topic and to say, actually, I'm not experiencing college that way. And it's not like it is, you know, in the brochures or on TV for me, I think is a difficult topic to, to start for people. Shannon, could you talk a bit about what qualities Natalie brings to this project that make her uh, such a good fit for leading this and, and doing both research and kind of outreach? So it's been such a pleasure working with Natalie for the last two years. She's been my graduate assistant, and we went through COVID together um, as a, a, a research team. And what we had started doing for our research in fall of twenty. 19, we suddenly switched when we started to get, both of us started to get really interested in the topic of food insecurity in the spring of 2020 with the, with the start of COVID. And that went through the summer. So together, Natalie and I launched a, a national survey of university and college uh, food pantries. And so Natalie brings this enthusiasm for the topic and a willingness to do anything, to, to try new things, to take big risks, We've learned so much together. We both started this food insecurity journey together. Um, so it's been really fun. Um, and we've been debating and talking about ideas and, you know, trying to unpack, particularly around the administration and management side of running food pantries and getting them started. Together, we wrote a grant for a local food pantry that was successful, that they've been able to spin off into a few other grants. And, and, and her project management skills and time management skills are fantastic. And she keeps me on my toes and, and really pushing forward and knowing that we have done, been able to do this as a team has really, I think, meant that we've been able to do a lot more things than we would have normally done as given a pandemic. 
And that leads into my follow-up question, which is, tell us about the process for the project. So, you know, what were the questions you began with? How have you gone about gathering data? And, you know, who are you talking to to learn more about this problem and to find solutions? So, Natalie, do you want to start that off? Sure. So I think one of our first questions is kind of, it was very broad and it was very basic, but it was, how do you do this? How do you start? Because I think like most services, most nonprofit work, you kind of see the end result, but the beginning and the process, you don't get the, the background of, especially if you're you're using the services, you kind of walk in. And if you walk into a food pantry, you don't necessarily see all the behind the scenes work. You don't see all of that goes into it. Um, and so our first question was, how does this work? But especially from a management side, how do you work sustainably? So how do you make sure it's not just kind of a a great beginning and then peters off after that? How do you make sure that the work that you're doing is sustainable? How do you make sure that you're actually meeting your goals? We talk a lot about, you know, what are our actual goals? Because your goal could be to hand out food and that's great. And it's a, you know, it's a useful goal, but is your, is your goal bigger than that? Is it talking about working to end hunger on campus? Is it supporting students in more than just one way, more than just food? Is it helping them find other services? So kind of what should our goals be? And through that, we've talked to a lot of people like Dr. Orr said, we sent out a nationwide survey where we talked to um, universities or food pantries at universities across the country and the people who run them and asked them, you know, what are your best practices? What do you do best? But also what what do you struggle with? What's hard? Um, Because we wanted to find out kind of where those common issues were and how we could how we can meet that from day one. And then we've also been talking to volunteers at college campuses, volunteers at food pantries, and asking them, you know, what's it like to be a volunteer? Is it, you know, what you thought it was going to be when you walked into this? Do you know something different now than as you volunteered? You know, as a student who could also be facing food insecurity and a volunteer, where do you, where does that kind of overlap lie? And how do you feel about using services, but also providing services and kind of creating a comfortable space on campus for students to get support? with along your fellow peers, because they're peers as well as being volunteers. Shannon, could you talk a bit about how this project brings together qualitative and quantitative research? Because that's obviously something that we care a lot about at ICS, not just sort of doing the research, but how how do we talk about that research? How do we, you know, communicate and collaborate with others? So for our research project, the bigger project that we, we started with, which was this national survey of uh, campus food pantries, a lot of that was quantitative data. So we were asking food pantries to tell us how many clients do you serve a semester? How much food do you give out? How much uh, does each client receive per visit? How many visits um, a semester can a client um, uh, receive? So lots of qualitative, quantitative data that we pulled um, as a result of that survey. But then as, as Natalie in particular, start, in particular started to get interested in the idea of the stigma and research into um, volunteers, one of the things that we realized that was missing from our survey, although we did ask some open-ended questions, but was you know the, the stories and the, the lived experiences of these volunteers. And so Natalie's work is focused, uh, is focus groups. And so she's engaging in conversations specifically with volunteers at campus food pantries uh, and to talk to them about their experiences. So we have a really, you know, mixed methods approach uh, for our, our, you know, kind of bigger research project on food insecurity. Natalie, has this project where you are taking together both quantitative and qualitative methods, how has that shaped your understanding of the issue from where you started to where you are right now? It's been really interesting because 
with the quantitative, you do get that number and you can kind of see the staggering, the staggering results in some cases and the sort of similarities between programs to how much they give and how they support. But the stories, I think, have been particularly poignant and interesting because everyone who volunteers has their own reason for volunteering. Everyone who's involved in this has their own reason for doing so. And I think it's really, it's really impactful to hear why they started, how the conversations have affected them, and also, you know, what they're passionate about, about helping their fellow students, helping their community, and the sort of drive that happens. It's, it's very inspiring to hear those stories and know that there are people who care about this, because when you look at the numbers, it can feel almost like it's it's insurmountable, that you can't get over it. You know, it's a it's a hard process to face and a hard issue to face, and that maybe there's not a solution. And then you hear stories from people who are working on the solution and how much they care about it, and also that they, you know, that they understand the struggle, but they also want to continue on, I think has been really impactful. And it kind of, it it lessens those numbers, the impact of those numbers a little bit, and makes you think, you know, I'm not the only person who cares about this, and we're all working on it together. Shannon, how do you see your background as a researcher on climate policy and competing interests among stakeholders coming into play as the mentor for this project? So as uh, the mentor for this research project, I'm bringing um, that that background in mixed methodology. So um, my work on climate policy, in particular at United Nations climate change negotiations, in always involved um, large scale national international surveys of interest groups, nonprofits, organizations, businesses who were participating in the climate change negotiations. As part of my work, I was always able to attend uh, these climate change negotiations and do um, field observations and lots and lots of interviews. So, you know, being able to to use the, the the results of an international survey to get the data about why organizations are participating in United Nations treaty negotiations. Are they there to influence policy? Are they there to network? Are they there to learn? Are they there to make their own organization look better? So I can get that from a, an international survey. I can get that that kind of data. But being able to be there and watch it all play out and observe the activists, you know, doing their engaging in street theater and doing protests, but then at the same time seeing, you know, other organizations really engaged in attempts to do policy analysis and and to dive deeper into the issues and to look at the science of climate change. And then being able to do interviews and having people tell me their stories about why they participate and what it means to them and what do they think about climate change and and how much of a of a priority is it for their organization? How does it drive the work that their organizations do, whether it's an oil company or an environmental activist organization? So that work um, that I've done on climate change has really been mixed methods from the very beginning. So combining the international surveys with field observations and interviews. And so it's pretty exciting then to be able to work with Natalie and do kind of those same mixed methodology approaches, but looking at, uh, you know, more local experiences and particularly to be able to do this during the pandemic, you know, and for us to be able to really dive into it. But at the same time, trying to do work that will make a difference. So the the results of the national survey, we packaged them up into a report and uh, we've shared them with uh, campus food pantries. And people have been really interested in looking at different models of operations and that kind of uh, of stuff that we that we discovered from our survey. So, you know, I guess we've been able to add in this really practical and applied piece and, you know, kind of us trying to do our best to, you know, help other organizations through this through this pandemic and beyond into our new normal post-COVID. <laughs> 
With that in mind, um, thinking about not just sort of your process, but also kind of how you're sharing your results, Natalie, would you talk about how you think about collaboration as a result of this project? Sure. I think the collaboration part has been it's been really interesting because like Dr. Orr said, you know, we don't want this just to be kind of a, a report that we we finish and we package up and it goes out and it, it has no use to the world. Um, we really want what we're finding and what we're talking about to be shared. And I think food pantries in particular already are very, they're very good at that. And it's a big part of their work is sharing tools and resources and collaboration. So I think we've been really talking to with other universities because they have they all have their own experiences and they're all so different. You would think that running a food pantry would be kind of the same at every university and it's absolutely not. And they have been sharing, um, particularly the volunteers that I've been talking to have been sharing such different experiences and viewpoints that have kind of shaped each other's understanding of what's happening. I mean, in focus groups, you get that added benefit of hearing other stories and hearing the, the experiences of universities. And so talking to a university that's in New York is really different than talking to someone who's volunteering in, you know, upstate Washington. And it's very different than talking to someone who is working in Bowling Green. And so understanding kind of the experiences that that we can share and saying, you know, oh, we do that too. We have that issue too. We face that as well. But also I've never heard of that before. And I would love to bring that back to my supervisor and, you know, my team and say, we should be doing this. Another school is doing this and it's really beneficial. And then the idea of, I think, stakeholder engagement is a, is a big part of that, too, because running a food pantry isn't just done by one group. And especially on a campus, it's not done just by one one department or one kind of person. And so kind of understanding the the work that's done on, on a university and how you can utilize the, the services and the people that already exist here and already have the passion. I mean, talking to people at, at volunteers at other universities who are social work majors and saying, you know, we get our our internship hours from doing this volunteer work. So not only am I, you know, involving my degree and my department, but also I'm being able to help the food pantry and I'm able to provide more services than just, you know, packing a bag of food. I can talk to them about, do you know about this service? Do you know about these things that are happening? And I think that's been really important um, and certainly something that has impacted how we're asking questions because once you realize what other people are are doing and how other people are helping, you kind of ask, well, how do we do that? How do we take that further? How do we make sure that's, you know, included in all the work that we do? Natalie, what are some of the specific stigmas that food pantry users endure? And how do those negative uh, stereotypes impact people's access to food pantries and to, you know, quality food? One of the biggest stigmas they face is that it is really difficult for anyone to ask for help. I think especially in America, we have a very, um, we have a very, you know, everyone wants to do the work themselves. And it's, it's kind of an individualist society. So when we talk about asking for help, that's a hard thing for people to do. And it's especially hard when it comes to food, because that's seen as something that you're supposed to be able to provide yourself and your family and particularly for families. And so I think that's part of it, but also the stigma of you know, continued use. It's easy to say, okay, maybe I need help one or two times, but having continued support can be difficult for, to ask for and can be difficult to manage because it's not a simple process. And food insecurity also is not, you know, a binary experience. You're not food insecure or not food insecure. You have, you experience it on different levels. And so I think there's that stigma of saying, well, I'm not, you know, I can provide some food for my family, but I can't provide, you know, a lot. And so that stigma of saying, do I actually need the help? Do I need it as much as I, I say I do or as much as other people do? 
is a is a big stigma to face. And also particularly on college campuses, that stigma of I know people here. And, you know, when I walk to classes and, and I walk to the food pantry, am I going to see someone I know? And I think that can be a difficult hurdle to jump because you don't want anyone to recognize what you're experiencing. And you also don't really want to recognize other people experiencing that because it kind of breaks down the community aspect we have of everyone's kind of living the same experience. And we all have the same resources here, which are, which aren't true, but you don't want to kind of experience that firsthand. So it's difficult to get people to, to ask for help, um, because it's, it's not easy. And also it's difficult then to continue, have them continue coming for help because after that first experience, they may think, well, I've had my one bout of help. I don't need any more. And for them to see the pantry is for a continued use and it's for continued support and it can provide more than just, you know, one instance of help I think is really important. So what are some of the ways that you, you're learning you can reduce that stigma? Um, and make it easier for people to access those resources and to do so in ways that aren't, you know, re-stigmatizing? I think the biggest one is just the conversations you have about the food pantry on campus. Um, what I've talked to with students is that word of mouth is the biggest way to sell the, sell a food pantry. Um, you know, you can ensure that students have a positive experience for the 10 or 15 minutes they're in your pantry a week, but for the rest of the time, that's, you know, kind of problem of the campus. And so you need to make sure the conversations that are being had on campus, um, whether that's through your own volunteers or people who use the pantry, but also through advertising and, and you know, the way the administration talks about it and the way that university employees or faculty talk about the pantry has to be positive as well, because it has to be a continued process of talking about why it's important and why it's it's vital. But also kind of talking about it less as something that you need help with and something that you're you're struggling with. The word struggle is a big one because you don't want to talk like people are, it's a negative thing to, to face food insecurity or that you're doing something wrong if you're facing food insecurity because in reality, it's it's so much more common and so much more complex than just, you know, it's it's a problem. It's it's bigger than that. So I think talking particularly about the way you, you talk about people who come and use your food pantry, they're not, you know, people in need. They're just, they're clients. They're people getting a service. And that if the food's there, if the food exists, it should be helping people. So I'm talking about an abundance of food, talking about, you know, it's there for people to help and that you're not, you know, wrong or bad or failing for needing that help. You're just someone who is going through an experience that millions of people face. And if the services are there, you might as well use them. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the Big Ideas Podcast. If you are passionate about big ideas, consider sponsoring this program. To have your name or organization mentioned here, please contact us at ics at bgsu.edu. Welcome back to the Big Ideas Podcast. I'm talking to Dr. Shannon Orr and Natalie Orsleen about food insecurity and food pantries on college campuses. This is a question that's sort of more about process, and either of you can take this up. What are some of the obstacles that you've faced with this project, and how have you had to adapt your methodology or your approach based on some of those challenges? I think in particular, one of the hardest things is getting people to talk about this topic in a both positive and negative light, because we've talked about the passion people face with it, and sometimes for them to say that a food pantry has struggled or they themselves as volunteers have found something 
difficult to manage or difficult to talk about can be hard because you want to talk about food insecurity in the work in a very positive, reflective light because it's it's supposed to be a good service and, and beneficial. So getting people to say, you know, actually, I think our food pantry could be doing this better or actually, you know, we're facing this issue with our community or with getting people to visit or any kind of management issue, that can be really difficult, especially when pantries or volunteers are kind of in the, the middle of all of it. Because when you're working and you're doing, you know, your services and you're helping and providing, it can be difficult to look at the bigger picture and say, what could we be doing better? Like right now we're in the throes of it. Right now we're doing all this work and it seems like it's going well, but could we be doing something better? And I think that can be difficult for people to kind of take a step back and, and self-critique and critique the work they're doing. And particularly in the middle of COVID, because everyone's kind of been in, you know, all hands on deck panic situation. And, you know, food pantries are getting more requests than ever. They're having to adapt a lot of their systems. So having to ask them, you know, is this is this a symptom of COVID or is it a symptom of a larger program issue? Is it a symptom of a management issue? And how do you how do you reflect on that and decide how to fix it in the long run? With our national survey of campus food pantries, one of the things that we discovered, so we sent it out, we put together an email list of of 200 uh, campus food pantries across the United States at universities and community colleges. And a number of them, uh, we got automated responses saying that due to COVID, the food pantry had been shut down and the email wasn't being monitored. So from a research standpoint, that's frustrating because those are responses that we're, we're not able to get. But you know, from a, a services perspective, it was it was heartbreaking to see that because there's you know students were facing escalating need with residences being shut down, with job losses, wages being cut. You know, all of those that the the need for students um, has never been higher. But for many of these uh, campus food pantries, uh, they had to sh- shut down their operations. So you know, from a research perspective, it was somewhat frustrating, but just when you think about the impact on the students, you know, that was, that matters far more. Shannon, could you talk about what impacts you see this studying, this study having potentially at BGSU? Yeah, so we're, you know, there's a um, a really strong community of people at BGSU who are engaged in work around food insecurity. And so we really hope that the work that, uh, that's happening here in Natalie's, you know, particularly with these these focus groups of being able to better understand how to meet the need for food insecurity on campus, the different options that exist out there, the different services that can be provided. So, um, you know, it's pretty consistent. The studies that have been done of BJSU students at Food Insecure, about 30% of students say that they have experienced some form of food insecurity. And so that might be, you know, anything from, you know, the day before my pay, my paycheck, I, I, you know, I don't have any food, anything to, you know, anything much more significant from there. So, but that's a pretty high number. And so being part of this conversation and being able to understand, you know, I think particularly one of the things that we've really focused on has been best practices and trying to understand what are the best ways to meet the needs for students related to food insecurity. Because if we can do that, you know, the quality of life, the students gets better. So a, a campus food pantry, you know, not, doesn't just provide emergency food. It provides the support for many students to finish a semester and to persist to graduation. 
This project looks at food insecurity at BGSU. But as you've alluded to, we know that this is a much larger national and even international issue. And it's become particularly clear over the last year with COVID that um, hunger and food insecurity have really disproportionately impacted Black, Indigenous, and POC communities. Food pantries address the symptom of a problem, but what are some of the larger roots of the problem and how can we begin to address it, especially to reduce some of those racial disparities? Yeah, I mean, so the, you know, the roots of food insecurity are rooted in poverty. And so, you know, looking at food insecurity from this much bigger picture and looking at things like the provision of food stamps, looking at wages, looking at, you know, employment availability, you know, I mean, the pandemic has amplified all of the challenges that we face as a society. Looking at, you know, food deserts is another one, right? So particularly in um, low-income and Black neighborhoods where there tends to be fewer numbers of grocery stores. And so then people are forced to re- rely on things like convenience stores and dollar stores uh, for their food. And so that means you don't have access to healthy nutritional food, you know, basic produce even. And so, you know, thinking about food insecurity is, is part of this much, much bigger issue of poverty in the United States. You know, one of the phrases that really rings in my head that have come out over the last several years in trying to understand, right, the root causes of poverty and food deserts and these things is that idea that it's expensive to be poor, that if you are forced to purchase food in within walking distance at a convenience store, you're going to pay two or three times as much for every item, right? I can go to Costco and get a big thing of toilet paper and spend, you know, very little per roll, but I have to have a membership. I have to be able to have the resources to buy in bulk. If you are you know, living day to day or week to week, paycheck to paycheck, everything costs more. And so it seems like that's one of the key things you're talking about here is that sustainable model, that these are not things that like one bag of groceries often isn't enough because it's a cycle that will continue. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things we talk about food pantries as being part of the emergency food system. And so the idea is supposed to be that these are, you know, short term kind of solutions. I need food now. But the reality is that more and more people are relying them on them for long-term use. And so, you know, we have some some big issues that we really have to have to deal with and governments have to engage with and try and figure out how can we better support people. Anything you want to add to that question, Natalie? No, I think like Dr. Orr said, this idea that it's an emergency situation, I think is one of the reasons why people you know, don't want to utilize food pantries and there's sort of a stigma against using them because you feel like you have to be in an emergency situation to to utilize a service like this. And people are, you know, they say, well, you know, I can, I guess, afford to go to these expensive stores and shop week to week and buy things that aren't necessarily cost effective or healthy or nutritious to providing myself and my family the best options. And so people say, I don't need that service, or they think, you know, I can only use it every so often. And so, you know, we want to provide services for people who need the long-term help, but also having a conversation around what are those root causes of the need for long-term help and how can we meet them at the beginning rather than the end, because food pantries often were, we're helping the symptoms of those causes, but we're not talking about the, the root of those causes. So saying, where can we go and help? How can we ensure that people are getting support from the beginning so we can, you know, address these issues head on? 
as we've been talking about, COVID has just revealed and increased the disparities and the need, especially around food. What are some lessons that you hope we will take away from this pandemic? What can we learn from this past year um, to do better or differently in the future? I think there's been a lot of really good conversations that have come out of the pandemic, particularly around the recognition of of how financially unstable many families were. And, uh, you know, I've been involved with a local community food pantry and the number of first-time users has skyrocketed since COVID first hit. And the number of people who say, I never thought I would need to use these services. And I think the recognition that many people were living paycheck to paycheck, and once that paycheck disappeared, how financially, how, how vulnerable they were. So I think those conversations are going to continue. Um, conversations about are there ways that we can do, um, you know, food stamps better? Are there ways in which we can integrate services so that maybe you come to a food pantry, but at the same time, you someone will help you to apply for food stamps, and that maybe somebody then will connect you also with some job services, or or talk to you about what it is that you really need without making the assumptions of why you're at the food pantry. So I think having these conversations. And we are engaging in them a lot more now, I think, has come out of this pandemic. I would say particularly, I think the conversation around why people use these services, I hope, really changes because like Dr. Orr said, we saw a lot of people for the first time using food pantries and using you know food and security services and realizing that how close they were previously to never having needed them and the kind of the really easy and, and unfortunate jump you can make in just a span of a couple of weeks to not needing these services to relying on them. I really hope the conversations change around how we talk about people who are food insecure and how we talk about people who face these long-term issues because what people I think are realizing more is that it's not through a fault of their own. It's not because they don't have jobs. It's not because they don't care to provide or care to work hard to serve their family. They Most people, you know, they have jobs, they have ways of supporting. It's just not enough. And so being more, I think, mindful about how we talk about people who face insecurity and how we talk about the services they get as it's a more open and honest conversation about why we face it, because it could be anyone and it could be, you know, for any reason. And that's not how the conversation was happening before COVID. And I think it's definitely shifted since. Are there any last things either of you would like to say that we you haven't had an opportunity to talk about? So, you know, to to those who are listening, your local food pantries need help. So, you know, as a call to action, uh, if you can support your local food pantry, even a, a $5 donation can go a long way uh, to helping people who are food secure in your communities. And I would say to especially college students who are listening to be to think about the kind of conversations you have around food and the people that are around you and be aware of the fact that maybe your situation is not the same as everyone else's situation um, on either side of it, whether you are facing food insecurity or you are not. And and try to have those conversations with your friends of, you know, are you experiencing this? How is this affecting you? And how can I help? And that help may just be being better in conversation about it, being more mindful about how you're talking about food, how you're talking about resources, the services that campuses provide. And how you're talking about the issue itself in the greater context of the world, because you never know what someone's going through, especially with the stigma students face. You never know what they're hiding from you, what they're trying to seem 
seem as normal as normal as we expect students to seem. And so the kind of kindness you can provide a student by talking about this issue in a positive light or talking about it in a in a more normalized light can go a long way to students and people actually getting the services they need and not being so afraid to say, I need help and it's not a bad thing. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Listeners can keep up with ICS by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can listen to Big Ideas wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. Research assistance for this episode was provided by Ryan Cummings and Stevie Sherrick. Sound editing was by Ryan Cummings and Marco Mendoza.